It's messy, but it's beautiful. Uh, we are in a series, a fun series. Last week, we kind of tackled this idea that oftentimes um, that beautiful is uh, sort of the co-pilot of messy, and that things that are beautiful often come with an element of messy. We talked about how that's reality with life, with relationships, especially parents with kids, still at home, where, man, it can be a mess, but it's filled with life and beauty. And we kind of step into that. And we talked about the message of Jesus last week being a bit messy. It's beautiful. It's profound. But it's not so cookie cutter. It's not put in a box that Jesus was meant to invite us on a journey with him in this beautiful message. And so this week, we're kind of hitting uh, part two, which is uh, beautiful disciples. And I just want to say out of the get-go that um, discipleship, messy is, discipleship is messy, and we are, as his disciples, are messy because discipleship is not a program. It's not a class. Uh, it's not a book study, although we do those things, and those are good things. But discipleship is much more than that. And I think oftentimes as churches, for the sake of making things a little more streamlined, we can put things in a box and say, hey, here's our discipleship class. And that's nice, but the whole journey that Jesus has invited us into, how many you know, cannot be accomplished in a class. That Jesus said, come follow me, because it's really more about the destination. I'm sorry, more about the journey than the destination. We are on a journey. Anybody with me? Yes. Speaking of that journey, can you turn that fan off? I'm sorry. I like white noise when I sleep, just not while I preach. <laughs> Matthew chapter 14 is a story that we're going to dive into a bit. And it says this, Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him, Jesus walking on the sea, they were troubled and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, here's the deal. If it's you, it's super important. If this is you, because I can't really see you and it's dark and you look like a ghost and I've never seen you walk on the water. And so if it's you, call me out onto the water. Tell me to come. So Jesus said, come on. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Another translation says, Why did you let doubt win? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Father God, I thank you for your word today. Thank you for your goodness towards us, Jesus, and this beautiful, messy journey that you have us on. And so today, as we take a step back and we look at your disciples and the call to discipleship, to follow you, Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our heart to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take you a little bit on a journey um, this message is going to be a little bit, little bit less, like I have three awesome points and a little bit more storytelling. Anybody okay with that? Yeah. So 
Um, how do we get here? Jesus or is, is walking on the water and, and he's calling out and Peter ends up walking on the water. And so I want to rewind for a minute and go kind of like, how did we get here? And so many of you know that Jesus spent most of his first period of his ministry life in Galilee. And it's a huge lake. Um, and he, there's a lot of little villages around this huge lake. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Those of you who are going to Israel with us in 2022, we're going to spend a lot of time in Galilee. It's awesome. Um, and uh, Jesus walked around basically inviting people, hey, come follow me. And so there's a lot of accounts in the Gospels where Jesus will walk up to, you know, two brothers fishing or to a tax collector or to Peter and uh, he'll be like, hey, can I steal your boat for a minute? And then he'll say, hey, you should come follow me. And at first glance, it seems a little strange. And I always thought that it was strange because the, the net result of Jesus saying, hey, come follow me, is that they actually did. And I always thought it was strange because some random person walks up and says, hey, you should come follow me. And it says literally they dropped their nets some say, some of the um, people that Jesus says, come follow me, it says that they literally dropped their nets, they left their profession, they left their dad sitting there on the boat with the fishing nets, and they went and followed Jesus. Which I always chalked up to like, well, he's the Messiah. If Jesus walked up and said that to you or me, we would do the same. But at the time, they didn't know it was the Messiah. They just saw him as a rabbi. And, and so I want to dig a little bit deeper into why they left with Jesus. And it wasn't because he was the Messiah, because at that time, in their mind, he wasn't the Messiah. He was just another rabbi. Turn to your neighbor and say, just another rabbi. So there's a better explanation for why these disciples left everything and followed Jesus. And it's not why you and I leave everything and follow Jesus, because we leave everything because we realize that Jesus has saved us, and so we're leaving our past behind. But that's not why they did, because he was just another rabbi. And so you have to understand the landscape of a young Jewish boy. Now, nowadays it would be boys and girls, but back then it was the Jewish boys, and they were a part of a school. And there was a couple of different schools as they were growing up, and in these schools they were learning uh, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And by the age 12, a young boy would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Crazy. Like you and me, we, we, we're like a part of a discipleship class. And we're like, okay, we're going to have one verse this week you're going to memorize. And if it's like a little bit too long, we're like, forget it. I'm sorry, I can't. Or it's in the wrong translation. I didn't memorize it in that translation, right? But then they memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized by the age 12. Now, that wasn't just the best of the best. That was, that was everybody. Now, I realize that people don't really use paper anymore to read their Bible. It's typically on a tablet. So you can't do this on a tablet. See, this is, what, this is why you get a real Bible, because... And you can actually look at it. Shameless plug for real Bibles. That's a lot to memorize by age 12. Crazy. And, and so what took place is at age 12, um, 12 to 14, you would go into a new discipleship 
schooling, and it was really their schooling, and they taught all kinds of things, but it was primarily around the Bible, and you began to recognize and follow a, a rabbi because the rabbi was the teacher. And so 12 to 14, you were in a class and there was, you know, a bunch of other boys with you, maybe, you know, 20 other boys. Again, the villages were pretty small. And so maybe 20, 25 other boys. And, they, and they're in a thing called uh, Beit Talmud is what this 12 to 14 year old Jewish school was called, Beit Talmud. And you just leave that up there. And, and this was all about not only memorizing the rest of the Old Testament. So by the time they're done at 15 years old, they have the, the whole Old Testament, like the best of the best, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. And, and this was basically a race to the front of the line. Starting at age 12, and this was a significant time in a boy's life, 12 years old, you started to really establish yourself. And so it was a race to the front of the line at this point in Beit Talmud to get to a place where the, 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 the rabbi would recognize you as somebody that, go, that could go to the next level. And, and if you didn't get recognized by the rabbi, then you would go back to your family trade and you would just, you would learn a trade and that's what you would do. But if you were selected by a rabbi, then you would go on at age 15, 15 to kind of 18, 19, 20, and you would begin to learn how to be a rabbi yourself. And it was a very select group. It was kind of like making the NFL or making, you know, right, the NBA. I mean, it was like the best of the best. You're in high school and you're hoping to make, get a scholarship and then you're hoping to get to the next le leagues. And it was like that rare of a, of a deal. And so 12 to 14, these Jewish boys, they're doing everything to impress their rabbi. And at the end of that time, they would go to their rabbi and they would say, can I be your disciple? Do you see something in me? This whole deal, these last two years where I've been killing it for you, have I made the cut? And at that point, the rabbi would would engage with some hard questions. He would probably ask you to do some hard things and then he would make a determination. And the determination was clear with the rabbi. Do I see something in this young man? Do I believe, don't miss this, that, that they can do what I do? They could be like me. Because make no mistake, at this point, 15 years old, they're asking the question, who is my successor? Who's going to go on to be the next rabbi? And I've got to pick wisely. I believe you can be just like me. And so come under my wing and I want to teach you. And if so, if in this moment where the rabbi would say, yes, you can be my disciple, he would say three simple words. And these are the words that every young Jewish boy longs to hear. Come follow me. And come follow me meant, I see something in you. I've watched you for two years. You're amazing. Not just your memorization skills, but how you lead and how you live your life and how you understand this whole concept, how you understand my way of doing things. I believe you can be just like me. Come follow me. It's amazing. So a phrase developed. And the, the phrase is covered in the dust of your rabbi. And I've mentioned this before because I just think it's fascinating. But this was a phrase that um, in that next stage 
where if you have been selected and there was only a handful and every rabbi would just have a handful of his disciples. And again, framing the, 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 the picture then for Jesus, right? He had disciples because he was a rabbi. And so for us in our day, like that just seems a little strange, but in their day, it was very natural, very normal. And so the, 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 the phrase covered in the dust of your rabbi became a thing. Now, this is Ronnie, and he is actually the tour guide that um, we went with to Israel two years ago, and we'll be going with again in, uh, in September. He's an amazing guy, and he is like the goat of tour guides in Israel. He is amazing. He actually took um, Lance Armstrong on a tour in Israel. Uh, not Lance Armstrong, um, the guy in the, um, that went to the moon. Um, Neil, Neil Armstrong. He took Neil Armstrong on a tour in the, his latter years. And they had some pretty significant moments. And, um, and Neil Armstrong asked Ronnie, hey, take me to one of the places that you know Jesus was. Because there's a lot of speculation in Israel, right? And, and like, I think it was here and this looks like, this might be the place. Uh, but there's, there's about five different spots where they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was in this exact spot doing X. And so he took him to, um, to one of these places. And uh, Ronnie tells a story that, that Neil had just this incredible moment. And so when Neil died, Neil Armstrong's wife reached out to Ronnie and said, will you fly to the States? And um, we'd like you to come to, to the funeral and, and be a part of this because of the moments that you had in Israel with Neil were so significant for him. So, uh, so Ronnie walks into Neil Armstrong's office just kind of look around and kind of pay his respects. And um, the wife comes in and she says, um, there's only one picture of Neil's accomplishments in his office. And it wasn't walking on the moon. It was Neil Armstrong with Ronnie in one of those places in Israel because it meant so much to him. The significance of being in that place uh, was amazing. And so when we were walking around with with Ronnie, um, I remembered this phrase, and I took this picture specifically for this phrase because I, it was a big, long group of people, but I always liked to be close to Ronnie because he would talk, and sometimes my earphones weren't working, and so I wanted to be close to him so I could hear him. So I, I was literally, like at the end of the day, literally covered in the dust of my rabbi. So we used to call him Rabbi Ronnie. But uh, the idea was walk so close to your rabbi that you're covered by the end of the day. Like, you're filthy. And back then, right, I mean, you know, it was even worse than this. They didn't have shoes. They had sandals. And so, I mean, if you were walking close enough, you would just be filthy dirty. And that ended up being like this bit of a bragging rights. Like, who's the most filthy at the end of the day because we've walked so closely with our rabbi? So Jesus, a rabbi, approaches his boys, these boys. Um, now, remember that, that when Jesus found the majority of the disciples, they were fishing. And what that meant was that at age 14, the disciples, before they were disciples, didn't make the cut. Because no students that made the cut that ended up following a rabbi would have been fishermen. Because fishermen was a low-class deal. That's like, go and help the family deal because you didn't make the cut. And so when Jesus shows up to the disciples, they are nobodies. They are people that were overlooked by a rabbi, all of them. 
They were all overlooked by a rabbi because they weren't smart enough, that they weren't funny enough, they didn't know the, the Torah enough. So they were out fishing and Jesus comes to them and he says, I haven't overlooked you. I see something in you. In fact, I believe you can be just like me. Now, they didn't know that was the Messiah, but they thought they, they realized it was the rabbi. And so they're like, oh my gosh, for sure I'm following you. So can you imagine the dad? Like before I felt bad for the dad because the dad's sitting there with his boys, right? James and John, they're fishing, they're throwing their nets. And all of a sudden here comes Jesus, steals the boys. And the dad's like, really? There goes my help, right? I'm gonna have to pull this net out all by myself. But now, can you imagine the pride of that father? Can you imagine going home? The wife's like, where's, where's James and John? Oh, they got... They got selected. A rabbi came by today. Imagine the next day, going fishing. All the other fishermen, the boats, getting their things ready. You know, he's got a couple of new dudes, right? His friends were like, hey, where's your boys? Well, rabbi came by yesterday. Picked them. My boys. Rabbi picked them. Any parents in the room? That'd be, a, that'd be a proud day. They saw something in my kids that no one else saw. It's amazing. So this makes Peter walking on the water less complicated and less confusing. So paint the picture here we are on the boat, and it's scary, and blah, 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 but, but the rabbi comes out. Now, at this point, they've seen Jesus do a few miracles. They don't know he's the Messiah, but like, it's kind of starting to warm up to that idea. Jesus has dropped a few things, and he's walking on the water, and so Peter's like, tell me that's you, because if it's you, if, if it's my rabbi, then that changes the game. If it's another rabbi, or somebody else, or if it's a ghost, that changes it, but if it's my rabbi, then listen, I want to be just like you. And you told me I can be just like you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have picked me. And so if it's you, tell me to come out on the water because I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. I want to be so close to you. In this case, I want to be covered in the water of my rabbi. I want to walk right behind you and do everything you do. If you're doing it, I'm doing it. So the question really is, how, how come the other disciples didn't get out, right? Like, G, like Peter was the only one, but this is, this is the whole deal, is, is Peter was saying, no, I want to be just like you. And that was the promise from the beginning, is you saw something in me, I'm going to follow you so closely. You with me? Yes. So let's take a deeper look into this story, because this is kind of where it gets a little bit more messy. So after Peter sank, Jesus pulls him up and says, um, why would you let doubt win? Why, why, why are you so fearful? Where's your faith? Why are you doubting? And I used to think that this was Jesus kind of scolding Peter about not having faith or trust in him. Like, come on, Peter. 
have I not proven to you that I'm going to take care of you, that I'm a good shepherd, that I'm God Almighty, that like I can do this, I'm holding you in the palm of my hand. Why would you doubt me? This is what I thought that, that Jesus was saying. But in actuality, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus sinking or is he just fine standing on top of the water? Anybody? He's not sinking, is he? So, Peter's not doubting Jesus. There's no reason to doubt Jesus. Jesus is just hanging out. He's probably got his hands in his pockets. He's standing on top of the water. Peter's not doubting Jesus. Jesus is doing just fine. Peter's doubting himself. Peter doubt, doubted the fact that he could do it. He walked out on the water. Okay, Jesus, you're out there, and I believe what you said about me. I'm going to get out there, too. I can do this, too. And he started doing it, and then all of a sudden, he looks around, and he goes, I can't do it. Like, I don't have this. You ever get into something, and you, you're like, you have the, the, like the best intentions, and then you're like, I can't. What was I, what was I thinking, right? I set the bar way too high for myself. And I just can't measure up. He loses faith that he could pull it off. So Jesus looks at him and says, why are you doubting? Why have you let doubt win? In other words, Jesus says to him, Peter, I wouldn't have called you. I wouldn't have chosen you if I didn't think you could do it. I just want that to sink in for a minute. I wouldn't have chosen you if I didn't think you could do it. Apparently, Jesus has more faith in us than we have in ourselves. Anybody relate with that? Why do you think that Jesus was then so emphatic when he said to the disciples in John 15? Remember, he was around the table, right, before he goes to be crucified, and, and they're having this last supper, and he says, you need to know something. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You, you, you remember that day when we were out there, and you were nobodies, and you were totally left behind, and you were, like, giving yourself as... 15, 16, 17-year-old boys to the family trade. Like, I guess this is what life's going to be because everyone overlooked us. And here comes Jesus. And he's like, come follow me. I see you. I know you. I believe in you. I believe you can be just like me. So Jesus is like, let's not forget in those moments when you get weak and insecure and you lose faith in yourself that like, this was not your brilliant idea. You didn't come to me and say, hey, Jesus, Pick me, right? Show you my resume. I was, a really good, I was a really good disciple. The rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about, right? I mean, it was, it, was, it was rigged from the beginning. It's a family thing, and it's just like, whatever. But look at my resume. It was amazing. I deserve this. No, Peter, Jesus is like, nah, you, didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And all of your inadequacies, all of your weaknesses, all of your shortcomings, I know, I know you don't deserve to be a disciple. There's a reason why you got overpicked or overlooked. But I chose you. Mm. So 
what he says to you and he says to me. Nobody, the nobodies, the undeserving, the underqualified, follow me. Don't you love how that frames that word, follow me? This, the, 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 this, isn't, this isn't this desperate pursuit to like be faithful to God and to just like try to live up to the gospel and try to do what's right and be a good person, to be a good follower. That like follow me is a call to our identity where Jesus is saying, I see you. I believe in you. I'm calling you to an incredible journey that you cannot accomplish on your own. It's not an invitation to religion, a do-gooder club, or even to be a part of a church. Here's the invitation. Come follow me. Here's the invitation. To believe what Jesus sees in you that can only be possible through his power and through his spirit. Come on, come follow me. This is the invitation. But this isn't where the story ends and it gets way messier. Because it's messy. Following Jesus is messy. It, it just is. And if you haven't experienced it to be messy, just buckle up. Right. Right. I wrote this true heart transformation. It takes much longer, costs much more, and is way more messy than you think. And I only say that because that's the whole point. And I've said this forever, like, and I know that we're not the only church that believes this, but this is just happens to be what we believe. Like, we're going after heart transformation, I'm not interested in behavior modification. That is a byproduct of what's going on on the inside. And it is messy, and it takes time. It's the long game. We're playing the long game. We're playing the long game because that's where the fruit is. Your behavior is the fruit of the transformation of your life. This is what we're going after. And it just, it's just harder. And I added this, and it always involves the breaking down of the old thing to bring about the new thing. The breaking down of the old thing to bring about the new thing. And Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter 20, or 2, verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. New wine is put into new or renewed wineskins. And I put that in there because it's super important. And I, don't, I didn't understand it at first. And frankly, I didn't quite understand this whole verse, the wine and like, uh, we don't use wineskins anymore. But it's super profound because wine represents the newness of God, the transformation on the inside, like, like God doing something new. And what God is saying is, he can't put his new in your old. Doesn't work. Can't handle it. He's doing something new, always, right? Glory to glory. He's doing something new. He's, he's renewing us and, and developing us to be like his son, to be like Christ, as he invites us to follow him. In order to do this, it's a renewed process. It's not a new wineskin. Don't miss this. It's not like you get saved and God's like, okay, thanks for your old wineskin. I'm going to give you a brand new one. I'm going to put my new wine in you and you're good. Well, yeah, like we're brand new. 
when we get saved. We're new creations. That's, that's real. But the process of becoming, everyone say becoming. See, I'm going to get all spiritual on you, but it's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is what happened at the cross. You are justified, forgiven, good to go, going to heaven right before God. That's the whole deal. But on the inside, there's a sanctification process. So it's the idea of I'm saved and I'm being saved. My spirit's saved. My soul's being saved. My flesh will never be saved. My soul, will, mind, and emotions. It is being saved. sanctification. It is a process, and it is the word renewed. So let me tell you how they would renew a wineskin. They would take it, and they would take it down to the riverbank, and they would fold it inside out. So they would grab it on the inside, and they would pull it. It's a leather, so it's gnarly. Pull it on the inside out. So now everything's exposed, and it's gross, dross, and everything's hanging off of it, because again, it's, it's old, and it's been holding wine. Then they would take it down to the river and they would find some rocks. And they would start out with the rough rocks and they would rub the, on, on the rocks and get the, the big stuff off, like sandpaper. And then they would go to a smooth rock and then they would do it a little bit more and they would, they would get it so that, so that the leather is like brand new on the inside. And then they would hang it up to dry. And that's where some people feel forgotten. Like, hello, I've been hanging here for a while. I think I'm dry. It's hanging there. It's got to dry completely. And then they pull it back to right side in, which is a painful process. It's brutal. And now it's good to go. It's been renewed, brand new. It's a process. Which is why discipleship is so messy. And this is my whole deal with why I have such a difficult time with the prosperity gospel. I'm not, let me soapbox for a minute. I'm not going to throw, out, uh, throw any churches or, 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 or pastors under the bus. But just in general, the concept of the prosperity gospel or bless me Lord gospel. That's just about you get saved and God's going to bless you and that's life. It's awesome. Can I tell you, Jesus is way more passionate and way more concerned with making you like his son than he is about you having some material blessings. Way more. Like not even in the same universe. And so when we come to God, we come like all jacked up on the inside. Hello? We got stuff in there, and yeah, like my spirit's made new, and I'm right with God, and I'm, I don't have to carry around guilt and, and all that stuff, but my soul is like all in knots, and it's been turned upside down, and Jesus is taking me down to the riverbank, and man, he's using the trials of life to make me more like Jesus. And it's messy, and it's beautiful, because he's doing something in me. And sometimes it hurts, but man, it's so good. He is so good. And he never chooses a rock that's going to hurt you. He never chooses a rock that's going to poke a hole in your wineskin. It's just this beautiful crafting of the master as he's like, ah. I'm making you beautiful. I'm making you whole again. Those things, those things that were like taking away from the life that I have for you, those things are gone, but it's a process. So you got to let me take you down to the riverbank and work it out. 
So we see Peter. And as I said, the story's not over and it gets messier because we see Peter and it's post-resurrection and it's John 21 and it's one of my favorite possible passages because it's Peter after the greatest failure of his life. Peter, the guy who's walked on water. Peter, the guy that's got all the answers. He's like, Jesus is like, you know, number one or number two guy. He's there. He's always there. I'll never deny you. And here's Peter and he is back on the boat. John 21. I actually have a picture of this spot where, where he's at. And it's just on the shore of this spot. You just leave that picture up. They, this is one of the spots that they know that Jesus was. They know he met Peter and the disciples in John 21. And, and he's out on the, on the lake. But this time the boat is not transportation for him. See, last time he was in the boat because Jesus is like, hey, let's go to the other side. And Jesus is like, I don't need a boat because I walk on water, but you guys do. So get in the boat and go to the other side and I'll meet you. Jesus goes up into the hill to pray, and then he comes out walking on the night, right? Because that's what Jesus does. He strolls on the water and runs into the disciples on their way to the other side. Well, that was because they were disciples who needed a boat. Well, this time, Peter is a fisherman. Again, back fishing. Which now we know the landscape of this whole deal. We know that that a disciple who Jesus chose to follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I will disciple you. I think you could be just like me. So let's leave fishing behind because I have something new for you. And now Peter is back fishing because he has lost sight of that whole thing. Because I know that there was a time in my life where Jesus believed in me and where I believed in me. But I have messed that whole thing up. And now, I'm going to be a fisherman again. See, that seed of doubt that Jesus pointed out. Why'd you let doubt win? You're so quick to, to lose faith in yourself. You're so quick to forget who you are in me. See, Peter's drowning in that right now. I don't know if there's anybody in the room that can relate with the feeling of drowning on the inside. Like, I don't, I don't. I read those verses and I hear those sermons and I know that Jesus thinks certain things about me, but I am drowning in my own insecurity, doubt, and unbelief about myself. And this is where Peter is, is in this moment. So Jesus looks Peter in the eyes. He walks along just this very shore and, and Jesus, Peter walks and jumps in the water uh, and, and he's soaking wet, gets some fish, walks along with Jesus and Jesus looks him in the eyes. And you know what he says? Follow me. Yeah. He doesn't say, Peter, what were you thinking? Denying me, cussing, running back to fishing, abandoning my whole deal. Like you left me. Oh, Peter's like, I see you. I love you. And let me tell you about this beautiful thing that's happening in you, Peter. Follow me. Follow me. This is a, such a significant moment in time in every believer's life. See, and, and I believe that many of us have already experienced this and will probably experience it again. There's a time when you get saved and you know, you know Jesus is Savior. 
Like he saved me from my past and I'm, I'm like learning about him and I'm stoked about it and I'm excited and I'm learning scriptures and I'm, I'm leaving my sin behind and sure I struggle every once in a while, but I'm good. And then there's a, there comes a moment where you hit the wall and you find yourself again at the foot of the cross as a believer. And you question, is this for me anymore? Because as a Christian, I failed again. And I'm not deserving of this. Should Jesus give me another chance? I wrote this, Jesus didn't need the confident, outspoken, larger than life Peter. Jesus needed, for his mission, Jesus needed the broken, humble, gracious Peter that found himself needing the cross one more time. Without that moment, Peter would have been like, dude, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'm good. You're awesome. I'm awesome. Let's do this. Let's do the mission. He'll roll into Acts chapter one, Acts chapter two, like I'm the leader, everybody because I'm the best. I clearly dominated all of you guys. Did you see me walking on the water? Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, I needed a little Jesus help, but like I walked on the water. Y'all didn't walk on the water. I did. Did you see how many verses of scripture I memorized? Oh my gosh. Guys, I am the leader of the church. Look at me. I'm awesome. And Jesus, all the praise to you, but let's go. Right? It's easy to get there, walking in my confidence and my boldness and walking in authority. I'm a Christian. I need to get a bumper sticker. And Jesus said, you know what, Peter? The enemy has asked to sift you like wheat. And you know what I said to him? Go ahead. Because I know you think you're awesome, Peter. And I know that you're living your best life. But I have something special for you. And unfortunately, it's going to require some time down at the riverbank. And you're going to feel turned upside down and inside out. And it's going to be painful. And some of it's your own struggles and your own failures. And you're going to feel like a failure. But I'm telling you, I am doing something beautiful in you. Even when you can't see it, this is the whole deal. This is when we find ourselves at the cross again and we realize Jesus isn't just my savior. He's my redeemer. He's redeemed my life. He saved me from the pit. And I know what that's like now. And I realize that the gospel wasn't a one-time thing that I needed. I need it today. I need it tomorrow. I need it the next day. And so Jesus invited Peter. Yeah, I still think you can be like me. Especially now that you're broken and that you're humble and that you don't think it's all about you and you're not trying to be perfect. You're every day saying, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. I wrote this down. Discipleship that doesn't lead to a personal encounter with the gospel is incomplete and lacking transformation power. 
How was your encounter with the gospel? It's messy, but it's beautiful. Please don't call a mess what Jesus has redeemed and made beautiful. Your life, whether you're in the very beginning of the being turned inside out process, whether you're down at the, rock, down at the, the river and God's got one of those smooth rocks or maybe he's got a sharp rock because there's like something that he's got to get off or maybe you're out in the back hanging, drying. Like, man, I feel really good, but I just feel forgotten. Like, hello, Jesus. I feel like I was created for a little bit more of this, but I feel like I'm just like forgotten in the dark. Wherever you are in the process, Jesus is doing something beautiful in you, and it's not about you. It's about the things that God is going to do through you, through a life that is broken and surrendered and given to Jesus. He can trust you then. He can trust you that you're not going to make it about you. He can trust you that all this power you're not going to use for your own glory, but you're going to do it for his because you have experienced the Redeemer, and you know that life flows from the foot of the cross. Father God, I thank you today that you look at us, you call us by name, and you say, follow me. I believe in you. In the midst of the journey, God, I thank you that you use all things in our life to work out this beautiful work in us and that you are faithful to complete this thing that you've started is if we just continue to throw our hands in the air and say, God, I surrender to you and your work. I'm not going to play the victim today. Lord, I'm not going to resist the things that you're doing in my life. I'm just going to simply say, Jesus, come. I'm following you. I have my eyes on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. And we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you.